0: Welcome to the All Souls Episcopal Parish in Berkeley's Sermon Podcast. Today was the fourth Sunday in Lent, and we heard from Emily Hanson Curran as she preached from the lectionary, which was Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, 11b to 32. As always, you can find more sermons or more information about All Souls on our homepage, which is allsoulsparish.org. God the Father, uh, the big gray beard Gandalf meets Santa Claus meets Dumbledore, that discerning father figure who rewards or punishes us based on how many rules of his we follow. Now, I know that we don't really believe that God is white and male and bearded up in the sky with a ledger, but do we? I see evidence that betrays many of us all the time. I remember when I learned that one of the core tenets of whiteness is individualism, that bootstraps narrative. The idea that I don't need other people, that it's most honorable to make it on my own without help. And then I I learned of some other tenets of whiteness, perfectionism and objectivity and the idea that there is one right way and therefore many wrong ways and it's much easier to label people good and bad and realizing the ways that I see these ideas play out all over the place. I didn't know it was part of whiteness because it was so prevalent in my world. I thought it was just how the world worked. And the gist of it is this. If you just perform correctly, achieve, make good decisions, show no weakness and appear to have no need, you can win at this game called life. It's a merit-based economy that belies our true collective assumptions about God and the world and how it all works. And it's why I think this parable still has power in it to offend and to cut us to the core. Because the Father in this parable, and Jesus by virtue of the Father, is introducing a new economy. One based on need and not merit. The attention and love and gifts of the father of the family are available because of your need and not on what you've done. I think it's in part why our our brand new affordable housing building was so offensive to some of the neighbors in this part of Berkeley. Getting a spot there wasn't based on how much money you've made in your lifetime or all the good decisions you've made that would allow you to afford a $2 million home in this neighborhood. But instead, it was based on how much need you currently have. But poking around at other stuff is low-hanging fruit. So I'd like to dig in at why this parable still cuts me to the core. Uh, The parable we read this morning is actually the third in a set of parables about things that have been lost, found, and rejoiced over. The first um, parable was about a lost sheep and a shepherd who uh, leaves the flock to find the one. The second about a lost coin and a woman who goes out in pursuit of this lost coin that she has lost. And then we get to the parable about the brothers and the father. I've often read this parable in Bible studies where we try out different lenses of reading it. So like first we we take on the role of the younger brother and we we walk through the story that way. And then we take on the, the older brother and then we take on the father. But this week as I sat with this parable, I found myself in the Pharisees and the scribes. These parables were a response to them, after all, because they were grumbling about how Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was trying to explain to the Pharisees and scribes why it was he was hanging out with these people, these people that the Pharisees and scribes disapproved of, trying to help them understand his strategy and why he was doing what he was doing. And what was he doing that was so offensive? He was giving his time and attention to people who, for one reason or another, had not followed the same rules of living to which these Pharisees and scribes had devoted their lives. And I resonate with that because I find myself jumping on this same treadmill, thinking that following all the rules will mean that I can win or get ahead. And in that, I find myself valuing the product more than the people or the relationships required to make the product. I see it in the ways I have a hard time delegating you, too, have probably seen it in the ways that I have a hard time delegating. <laughs> and the ways that I want to do it all by myself, or as my daughter says, all by me own. And all these quiet lies that I believe. And the thing is, I don't think I'm alone, because every time I participate in that, on that treadmill, my experience is validated and affirmed by the world around me. So, if I were to draw a Venn diagram, Uh, of these three parables parables in Luke 15. The things in that middle section of commonalities would be something like something lost, something found, uh, something celebrated over after having been found, and probably many other things. But what sits out here, unique to the parable we read this morning, is where I'd like to go. Because there's a consciousness in what is lost that we don't see, we can't see in a coin, and we don't see in the sheep. And which I think illuminates a little bit more of the subversiveness subversiveness of what Jesus is doing and trying to say to these Pharisees and scribes, and so to me. I've been reading uh, Christina Cleveland's new book, God is a Black Woman. And I know there's an expression out there that's something like, um, Lord, save my congregation from the last book I've read. (laughs) And I'm going to go there anyway, because it's really been rubbing on me the last few weeks. She talks about the ways in which our ideas of a white male God harm us, and how considering God as a black woman has the power to meet more of us where we are, and possibly to heal. So she says this. Uh, she uses white male God all as one word. Like a, what do you call those? Compound words? Conjection? No, conject- compound word. In white male God's world, world, To be human is to be needless. More than any other human characteristic, need seems to trigger white male gods' gag reflex. Whiteness's disgust for need is immortalized in the trophy of white masculinity, the self-made man. This mythical man who supposedly mastered his circumstances and acquired power in white male God's world all by himself, is celebrated in films and literature and even historical accounts, setting the standard for what it means to be human. The self-made man proclaims that not only is our need unacceptable, but we are expected to triumph over it without any significant help. We don't dare engage in vulnerable and mutual relationships with each other by admitting our need for help for fear that our vulnerability will allow others to dominate us. As I mentioned earlier, we see evidence of this all over the place. I hear it in the pressures, I, I hear the pressures of this version of God working itself out in parents wishing for a village to help out with the demands of raising a family and working full-time. I see it all over social media, particularly in women who have just pried themselves from this white male God version of reality. They post memes and quotes of others who have already discovered that these goals are unachievable. The expectation's too high. It's a joke, a hoax, a game we can't win, but which somebody somewhere keeps telling us we have to play. And I think that's what makes this story so compelling and why we all keep coming back to it again and again, because this is a story, a lesson about what the kingdom of God is like, what it's like to live with Jesus. Jesus is telling his followers and showing them that to be with him is to live in a totally different economy, one that subverts and undermines that big white guy in the sky and all his antics. You don't have to live like that. Those pressures don't have to win. Jesus is trying to shake loose our imagination. And so the thing that separates this parable from the other two in this set is the expression of need from each character in the story. Unlike the other two parables in this story, the thing that is lost is able to feel lost, to say so, and do something about it. And it's their needs and pain that we resonate with so much. That younger brother, in his dare to ask for what's his, to try something and fail, and the ways he came to and realized that he can't do it alone, the older brother to feel skipped over, even after having followed all the rules. What would have happened in the story if someone had just gone to the field to get him, to tell him that they were celebrating his brother? If they had just invited him to, partic- to, to help make the party? But that didn't happen, and he got hurt. But he came to his father with his hurt, and he was able to express it very clearly. And then the father, to wait, hoping for the return of his child and to, even in his joy at the return of his child, hold his other son's hurts. These are things we know. These are things we feel. And they perhaps are needs we have had at one point in our life. But the two brothers did not receive the father's love and attention and wealth because they performed correctly or because they earned it. All of that was already there for the taking, built into the relationship but they came to know it. Their father's love, attention, and gifts when they lived into their needs and came to him with their needs. The older brother is not given more because he had done everything right. And the younger brother doesn't lose access to his family and the loving relationships with his father because he did everything wrong. That's just not the exchange here. God's economy is not transactional. This is a story about a parent's attention and an economy based on love and need and not merit. So I think it's clear, then, what Jesus is asking these Pharisees and scribes to consider. What would it look like to live in a world where the ones with the greatest need get the most resources, care, and attention? And what would it look like to live into the vulnerability of our needs, To freely express what we need and not fear falling short of the expectations or the perfection or the one right way. And then I thought of something Gert Allen said this week on the SoulCast. Because strangely enough, she talked about this. She said, until you need help, you're not quite aware how you can ask for help. But people are very happy to do it. We need to feel free to ask people to give what they're able to give because that's what makes a community. We all do this together. Christina Cleveland said it this way. Every time we hide our need, we take one step closer to white male gods contagious shame spiral and one step away from the liberating truth that our need is a luminous marker of our humanity. If we don't name our needs, we become machines, soulless. So I found myself in this story, but not as, as, but as one of the Pharisees and scribes on the side of living in a meritocracy with a God who rewards following the rules in this merit-based economy. It turns out I need the same reminder the scribes and Pharisees did, That when we change our behavior here in this immediate world, our ideas of who God can be can grow and change. I'm pretty sure that's what Christina Cleveland has discovered and why she wonders so clearly if God just might be a black woman. So what might it look like then to live in a need-based economy? the kind that might bring the kingdom of God here on earth and shape or reshape how we see God. I mean, I think that's a lot of what church is or tries to be when we meet in our small groups and value vulnerability and mutual relationships. And every time we come forward here on Sundays to receive this this body and this bread, this body and blood, we step into the aisle. We admit that we are needy, and we become that younger brother. When we do this, we step out of white male God's world and live into the subversive kingdom of need, of a parenting God who runs out to meet us on the road, or in this case, who stands in the crossing, awaiting our return every week. But what does it look like beyond these walls if we actually believe Jesus and believe in a power structure? That values the needs of another over what we can achieve. How would this change our interactions with others? How would it change our families? How would it change how we parent? What if we stepped out of the world of achievement and perfectionism and instead trusted our needs? Let them be known and let the relationships and experiences of those needs being met reshape our imagination of who god could be that's what i'd like to learn (laughs) how to live in that world with the liberating truth that our needs are a luminous marker of our humanity